Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I must admit, I'm a guy who likes preparation. I like things to be structured. I like things to go out the way I plan them to go. Um, but as I was sitting there, I was so um, amazed by everything shared this morning that I feel compelled to, um, yeah, uh, take that into the preach today. So I'm going to go a little bit more off-piste than usual. So, Lord be merciful. <laughs> well, uh, my name is Joost. I'm a student at London School of Theology. Um, and as part of my study, I'm doing a placement here at Christ First. Um, I want to thank you all for welcoming me into your church. I'm having a wonderful time here. And um, it's great and an honor to speak today. And we are continuing our series on the book of Exodus. Today, specifically, we will be looking at... Yep. At Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 through 25. And uh, today is It Has Become Known. Now, when Ali spoke to us last week, we read the story of how Moses was born, and through the courageous act of several women, and um, specifically a cunning plan from his older sister, was saved from death. If you weren't here last week, that sermon is on the website. It was really good, so do uh, check it out. Um, and we will pick up the story from there. When Moses was old enough not to be nursed anymore, he was taken into the royal household. Pharaoh's daughter took him in as her own son. So Moses spends the first years of his life at Pharaoh's palace, which is a life of considerable luxury. He, plenty, he had plenty of food to eat, uh, good food at that. He had a very good education. And above all, he did not have to do forced labor. He was one of the Hebrews, his people were enslaved in Egypt, but he didn't have to do any of that. And that's all we ever knew. That's the life he grew up to know. And Exodus doesn't tell us whether he ever got out to meet his family. But one day he does go out. Keep in mind that by this time he's a grown man. He's 40 years of age. We will start reading at verse 11. So one day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. I'm afraid this wasn't unusual. But to Moses, he couldn't stand by and watch, and he takes a drastic measure. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So before I came to the UK, I was working in the Netherlands full-time. I studied law there at uni, and I was working at uh, the judiciary. I was the judge's assistant, sitting next to him or her in the courtroom, and taking notes of everything that was being said during a court hearing. I did that. I've done that in the family law department, and also at criminal law. Now, by modern definition, what Moses does here is a very clear case of murder. The way he looks round to see if nobody's watching, then deliberately strikes that Egyptian down and then tries to dispose of the evidence by hiding the body, that would for sure get him convicted in the Netherlands. And I'm pretty sure in the UK it's not very different. But Moses seems to get away with it. He probably got home safe to the palace that evening without any trouble. 
And as we will see, it won't stay that way. From verse 13. The next day Moses went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one on the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Pharaoh, whose household Moses grew up in, is now seeking to kill him. As you will remember, Pharaoh had made a decree that all Hebrew baby boys were to be cast into the river Nile. Moses got away safely. But now, he's killed an Egyptian. Of course, we could speculate whether Pharaoh liked Moses in the first place or not. Maybe he wasn't very fond of having a Hebrew in his, in his household in the first place, but for one, if Pharaoh would allow this to happen, a Hebrew from the royal household to kill an Egyptian, that could lead to a revolt. If all the slaves would suddenly decide to stand up for themselves and resist, well, Pharaoh couldn't have that. And so he sought to kill Moses, who luckily gets away. And that's the first time Moses leaves Egypt. In the New Testament, in a letter to the Hebrews, Moses would be included in a long list of faith heroes and witnesses. Credited for discarding the riches of the palace and going out of the country in faith. But just to be clear, this is not that moment. The first time Moses leaves Egypt, he's not stepping out in faith. He's a fugitive. And he would, in the end, come back to Egypt and then leave Egypt again, this time as a deliverer of the people of Israel, the one who brought them out of slavery? Or did he maybe already see himself that way? When he saw this Egyptian beating up that Hebrew slave, did he think to himself, this is the time to start my mission? Of course, maybe he just acted on impulse, but then he came home safely, and a thought might have crept in, oh, I got away with this. Maybe there is a role for me here. I should stand up for my people and use my influence as a member of the royal household to improve things for them. And I could settle disputes among them as well, which he tries the next day. He goes out the next day, he tries to break up a fight, but he gets a very harsh response. Who appointed you, Moses, to be ruler and judge over us? Who do you even think you are? Guy from the palace. And quite honestly, maybe that man is right. Would you want to have a leader whose first known act was an act of murder? Am I going to be the next person you strike down and put down under sand? That's when Moses realizes it must have become known. Word has gone out. I have to get out of here. Moses was going to be the deliverer, but not in this time. And not in this way. Mm. I wonder, have you been in a moment where you thought, all right, I think I know what I'm called to do. There's a part for me to play. I've figured out what it is, I think. And I'll get right to it. Let's get on with it. If only others were to see it the way I did, that would be very helpful. To illustrate this, 
um, and brought a cartoon along. Everyone, anyone heard of Calvin and Hobbes? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a newspaper comic from the 80s, um, I think. It's about a young boy whose name is Calvin, and uh, he has a bit of a high view of himself. He thinks he's a boy genius. He has a rich imagination and he has a talking tiger friend. And one day, as they're walking in the woods, Calvin reveals some wisdom to him. I'm at peace with the world, Calvin says. I'm completely serene. Why is that? I have discovered my purpose in life. I know why I was put here and why everything exists. Oh, really? Yes. I am here so everybody can do what I want. <laughs> oh, it's nice to have that cleared up. Once everyone accepts it, they will be serene too. <laughs> I think there are moments in our lives where we would say to others, or think, even say to God, I figured out what I'm supposed to be doing. Come on, let's go for it. I'm willing to go for it. Now let's see that door be opened. We rush ahead. We want to get on with it. We take rash action, and even though the results of that are questionable, we see it as an affirmation. <coughs> We've heard several words shared today about patience. And we are impatient. We want the things we want now. In the case of Moses, even when God calls him to be that deliverer, and he goes back to Egypt, he will face setbacks and harsh criticisms. His initial efforts to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt, they only seem to make things worse. More than once they will tell him, just stop, you're not helping. Right now, after his first act of standing up for the Hebrews, Moses is a fugitive. Right now, he's just a Midian. Let's read on from verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. He didn't really learn his lesson, did he? He just couldn't let it slide. But this time, it works out for the better. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. In helping out the daughters of the priest, Moses finds a plan. He even has his own family, and he has a place to stay. But he knows and he feels that he is far away from his own people. He's far away from home. The name he gives his son is very revealing. I'm a stranger now, in a place I don't know. Remember when Moses left the palace to visit his people? He's 40 years old. It will now be another 40 years that Moses spends out in Midian. Forty years of being a foreigner in a foreign land. He never saw his Hebrew family in all this time. And another generation grows up without him. In verse 23, 
During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. <coughs> the situation seems pretty gloomy. The Pharaoh who tried to kill Moses, okay, he passed away, but the new king doesn't in any way improve the situation for the Israelites. And yet something does change. The prayers and the cries of the Israelites go up to God, and God isn't absent or unaware of their situation. Just as he isn't unaware of ours. You see, God had established a covenant with the patriarchs of the nation, Abram. Isaac, Jacob. And there's something in the establishment of that covenant that is very important for our story today. So we're going to go back for a moment to Genesis 15. There's a ritual that takes place here. Abram, who, whose name is now Abram and will later be Abraham, he cuts several animals in half at God's instruction. There's a covenant made, and in the process of that covenant, God speaks. Genesis 15, starting at verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness <coughs> came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God knew from the start, from the beginning, <coughs> the making of the covenant, that the Israelites would end up in slavery in Egypt. He foretold that they would be in that situation for 400 years, strangers in a strange land. God said the Israelites would be enslaved and mistreated. I'm just thinking of the words that were shared this morning. There was a story shared about waiting for two years, turning your job, a 26-year wait for a turnaround in the family. Here we have Moses who will spend 40 years, a stranger in Midian, and the people in 400 years of slavery. And God knew from the start. What does that say? Well, the fact that he knows from the start means that he knows how it will end. Let's be clear about this. The fact that God foretold this does not mean that he sits by idle and just watches as it happens. Not, re not rejecting each prayer for deliverance on the grounds. Sorry, it's not 400 years yet. Um, just hang in there. I will be with you shortly. He's not one to let suffering endure just because he is indifferent to it. If anything, the fact that God foretold this in Genesis tells us that God is faithful. He is faithful to his own word. What he says about slavery will come to pass. And that means that there is no doubt that his promise 
that the people will be brought out of it and leave that land with great possessions will also come to pass. That's one. The second thing we find in the last verse of Exodus 2. That's verse 25. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The translation of these words in Hebrew is correct. But there's more to it than we may realize. What is translated here as was concerned about them implies not only awareness of fact. Also, it isn't just that he sympathizes with them. Sometimes people say that to one another. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Which is good, it is good to sympathize, but sometimes it is just that. Somebody was going to come with us to church this morning and she said she didn't feel well so she couldn't come along. And I thought, well, I'm sorry to hear that and I hope you will get well soon. And at the same time I felt, well that's about all I can say. And I can't. I can't do anything other than that. Maybe that person thinks, well, oh, okay, it's, it's nice of you to sympathize. It's good to know I'm not alone. And we'll share in the hope that it passes soon and we'll be alright. But God does more than that. Now, I don't know that much about Old Testament Hebrew as of yet. <laughs> but I've learned this. When it says in Hebrew, that God knows, it implies deep, intimate connection. The verb that is used for know is the same verb that is used, for example, between marital partners, often right before we read that they have a child, and Adam knew his wife, Eve. It isn't synonymous for the consummation of marriage, but on a relational level, it means there is a close connection, a deep way of sharing and complete acknowledgement of one another in all forms. And that is the word used in verse 25, that the NIV translates as, was concerned about them. ESV, English Standard Version, translates it like this, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He knew their suffering, not just as an awareness of fact, but as a deep, close connection. In his book, The Message of Exodus, Alec Mokjev writes this. His knowledge of how we are placed, how we feel, what it is like to be us, is not a remote or merely objective acquaintance with the facts. It involves a coming down, a knowing companionship, indeed a transforming intention. That's Alec Mortier, The Message of Exodus. Now, LSD probably wouldn't approve of me referencing it that way, so just to be sure, that's Mojir J.A., the message of Exodus, well, it's, it's, it's on there, if you would like to look it up. <coughs> but the point is, God knows the suffering of His people in a deep and personal way, and He will do something about their slavery. It really involves a coming down. God says so explicitly in Exodus chapter 3. We will for sure examine God's calling of Moses in this chapter 
more detail in, on another Sunday in a week or so. But today, let's read from Exodus 3, verse 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. I know their sufferings, and I have come down. Maybe you remember a recent moment in your life where you're here today now, wondering if anyone knows what you are going through at the moment. How heavy it is to carry, how much it is weighing you down. The book of Exodus reminds us today that God is not a distant, onlooking God who just wants for it to stay that way. He doesn't want for us to remain enslaved. And I was particularly struck by how he says, I know their sufferings and I have come down. Because we serve a God who has come down. Literally. He has seen our suffering. He sees how we struggle in sin. How we are separated from Him without any hope to come back. We sing it, we sing it sometimes, last week we sang it. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain we could not climb. God knew and He has come down. We serve a God who knows in knowing companionship everything we go through. Because He felt it. The name of this church is Christ First. Jesus Christ was born into this world as a baby. And he felt joy. He felt the sense of family. He felt friendship. He also felt the loss of a friend. He mourned over the death of a loved one. He felt discouragement. He felt loneliness. He felt betrayed. God is aware of all these things. Of course, He is above all these things. He is sovereign over them, but that doesn't mean He controls everything like a puppet master. He has come down and felt it all for Himself. That means there is nothing that He doesn't see and no silent, broken prayer that he doesn't hear. Because he came down to us and felt it all. One more biblical passage. It's from Isaiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Please be reminded today that God knows your suffering, just like he knew the suffering of the people of Israel. And he has come down to deliver us. That's no quick fix. God's way isn't the same as ours. And our idea of a solution or what's the right time for it, God is not bound by that. But on Jesus Christ, all iniquity was laid. He bore that weight. He died. And he rose from the grave. And he delivered us. I'm going to conclude at this. But um, I want to share an invitation. Soon we will have our prayer team. I think it will be at the back. Yep. Please find me. If you are carrying a weight that you can't shake off, if you've met with disappointment, if you have felt, so when is it going to change? Maybe you're even suffering from something and you're shy to tell it anymore. Because sometimes we may feel, okay, I've mentioned this to God, I've prayed about it for three times, should probably stop now. Don't. The Israelites cried out to God and God remembered His covenant. So find a prayer team. And after the service, be sure to head, not downstairs, but over there, second door on the left. To share a cup of tea and coffee with one another. We've shared life and what God's doing in our lives so richly this morning. Let's continue doing that today. And let's pray for him. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that in the middle of the storm you brought us safely to church. And thank you for the time we have together. Father, we worship you because we know that you are a God who knows. Who knows our suffering. Who shares. And who bore the weight of all our suffering and all our iniquities. You took it up on your own shoulders. Father, go with us this week. We know that you are with us. And we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.